each of you this morning. Um, as Carrie Jane said, my name is uh, Mike Traben, one of the pastors here also at Trinity Fellowship Church. Um, as was pointed out this morning, I'm the old Mike. There's a younger Mike if you're a visitor. Um, dark hair, dark beard, no gray hair, so uh, you can't swing a dead cat at Trinity Fellowship Church without hitting a mic somewhere. <clears throat> Well, I hope everybody uh, has had a wonderful holiday and new year. Um, For the next three weeks, the pastors are presenting just sermons of their choice, if you will. Scriptures that we've chosen, no particular theme as we lead up to our upcoming sermon series. And so this morning, I've chosen Psalm 23. I don't know how many of you may have experienced this in the days following the the holidays where you you felt hungover. Um, The day after Christmas, all of my kids were hungover. Uh, Mostly from the Benadryl we give them to go to sleep. I'm just kidding. Um, I have four children at home, ages 13 and under. Uh, But this hangover, and we've all, I think, experienced it, where we, this feeling that in spite of everything that we have, something is missing. I still need something. I'm still lacking something. I got everything on my Christmas list, but I I still need to go to Amazon and look for that one thing that's going to make me feel fulfilled and happy. In my house, it looks a lot like I have a room full of toys, but I don't know what to do. And that got me thinking as I'm standing at the recycling bin in the alley behind my house, breaking down all of the cardboard boxes, just feeling a bit disgusted with the amount of things that my family consumes. You see, we've been conditioned to consume in this country in particular. Our our culture encourages us to be consumers. The broader environment even wants to consume us. And so often, because we're so caught up in the day-to-day, we can lose sight of that. Our capitalist market economy creates this socioeconomic order that encourages the purchasing of goods and services. Our economy doesn't work if you and I don't buy stuff. It creates and it rides on consumption. Marketers, advertisers, internet influencers, they all strive to convince us that we we need this or that. If I just had X, Y, or Z, then I would be fill in your blank. Satisfied, happy, complete, secure, confident, And as technology has evolved, we're we're not only the consumers, we're now finding ourselves to be the product, right? We've got this interconnected, internet-connected, internet of things that's continuously collecting and relaying information without your and my conscious participation that's tightening our system into a more circular system. The things you think about, the things you look at, the economy tries to sell you. And you buy it and they feed you more. And yet in the midst of that, just in our own culture in America, we're in a world that feels overly consuming 
And I don't mean in the sense of consuming like us, buying, although the number of consumers worldwide is increasing exponentially, outrunning the resources of our planet. But my point is, is that the world feels overwhelming. I've never felt so overwhelmed by the world in all of my life as I have in the last couple of years, nay, the last couple of months. Nations compete for resources to fuel economies, to fill arsenals, to wield authority and influence over one another. And if that wasn't enough, overlaid all of this is a spiritual realm. A realm that brings forces to bear in the world that are designed to thwart the will of God. And those spiritual forces want us to be consumed. Consumed by our wants and needs. Consumed by everything that's happening in the world around us and is out of our control. They want to consume us. I've shared this before. I had a professor in seminary who was talking about uh, a lot of things, but he said, you know, the devil, first he tries to deceive you, and if he can't deceive you, then he tries to kill you. In 1 Peter, Peter says, he says, your enemy, the devil, the adversary, the one who wants to separate us from God is, is like a roaring lion. He's on the prowl looking for someone to devour. The devil wants to consume you and me. And I think one of the ways he's working at that is to make us consumers. So Peter says, be sober, be alert. Don't be hungover, be sober, be alert. You see, as Christians, we're constantly buffeted by our surroundings. We're, we're constantly being spiritually formed. The question is, which spirit is forming you and me at any given moment? It's, it's a relentless environment. And yet as Christians, because we live in this consumer society, this consumer economy, it's, it's not surprising that the church's discipleship methods have become largely centered on consumption. On the consumption of information, on the consumption of experiences. As overwhelming as the choices we have as consumers in every facet of our life, it's overwhelming the number of ministries that you can pay attention to, be a part of, the number of programs that various churches offer, the number of books being marketed, the number of podcasts you can access, online sermons, conferences, seminars, camps, cruises. And they have their value in their place, without a doubt. Please don't hear me say they don't. But Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all people. And how did he say we're to do that? He said we're to do that by baptizing them and by teaching them. And teaching them what? What did he say we're supposed to teach them? To obey everything that I have commanded you. And so my point, friends, to go on that short diatribe is to say I think that the habits that we're instilling in disciples needs to be reevaluated. We live in a dangerous universe in some senses. 
We live in a dangerous world. We live in a dangerous economy that wants us to be consumers. I'm a consumer. We need to look at these habits and reevaluate them, and our obedience to Christ needs to be reassessed. Are we being obedient, or are we just consuming information and knowledge? Well, I think we find, so the question I'm trying to address this morning is how are we called to live in the midst of a consumer culture? Where do we begin? Well, I think we find a major part of the answer in in what is perhaps the best-known psalm in the Bible, read for us this morning by Carrie Jane, the 23rd Psalm. Would you bow your head with me in prayer for just a moment? Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23, is a psalm of confidence As Carrie Jane mentioned this morning, the Psalms are are songs, they're prayers, they're liturgies. It's a song of trust, Psalm 23. It's a meditation on all that the Lord does for one who trusts in him. So we can start by looking at the Psalm and saying we, we can be confident in who God is and what he does for us. We don't have to look for the next thing or the thing that's missing. We can be confident that God provides everything we want. It describes the life we all desire. It's why this passage is is loved by people who love the Lord as well as those who have no relation of faith to God at all. It's it's the one of the most well-known psalms among all people. Everybody, I think, has heard it at some point or another. And the imagery is, as you've heard and will see throughout the psalm, is is of a shepherd and their sheep. Sten read this verse from Luke 15. You see, the the qualities of sheep and shepherds, they, they make themselves apt metaphors for spiritual realities. Sheep and I'm not overly familiar with the actual animal, but sheep, I read, are helpless and defenseless. Shepherds protect and they provide and they care for the sheep. In ancient Israel, it was an economy very dependent on sheep and shepherding. Sheep used for food and milk and wool. They were a huge part of the sacrificial system. But in ancient Israel, as dependent as they were on sheep, the work of the shepherd was considered the lowest of all works. It was an unpleasant assignment. It usually went to the the least important person in a family or a culture. It it would be like saying, "The, the Lord is my garbage man. He takes all my cardboard to the recycling bin. 
It was an unpleasant assignment, a, a relentless, unending 24-hour-a-day task, which is what makes the imagery of this psalm all the more amazing as we turn to, to the first verse. You heard it read this morning, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm, I'm using the New English translation. It, it, it was a translation created by the, the professors at the seminary I attended I appreciate the scholarship behind it. It has some different wording. It doesn't matter what version of the Bible you read, as long as we read it. But the New English translation reads, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. See, Lord, as we read it in this translation, it's, it's the English translation of the Old Testament personal name for God, Yahweh. A, God, a name that they wouldn't say, a name that they wouldn't write out. It means I am who I am. If we recall when, when Moses asked God for his name, he said, I am who I am. It's this idea that God is timeless and he's all sufficient. And this text tells us that who is our shepherd? It's the timeless, all-sufficient God. The triune God of the universe who selected the least, what, what your culture thinks is the least important task. God says, that's my job. I'm the shepherd. I am the, Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. As we read this verse, we can take away from it that I'm not the one in charge. I'm in the care of someone else. Have you ever had that experience where, man, it's great, I'm not in charge for the moment, maybe as a parent, maybe as an employee, maybe you've been on a, a trip somewhere, you know, it's just relaxing. I get on a plane to fly somewhere, I don't fly the plane, I don't land the plane, I just ride the plane. It's really nice. I don't have to answer my phone, I'm not in charge. I can read my book, I can take a nap, I can think about the things I want to think about. I'm not in charge. I'm in the care of somebody else. And how marvelous is it that we're in the constant care of the, the most good, most loving, most perfect, most patient, most powerful, most wise being in all of the universe. When, when the psalmist utters these words, the Lord is my shepherd, he's essentially saying, I've, I've surrendered my kingdom to God. I've surrendered my personal kingdom to God's kingdom. He carries all the authority of leadership and responsibility for our care. And he promises us constant companionship in the midst of this. We can't miss this. At the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus gives the great commission. I mentioned it earlier. And his last statement is to say, Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. The greatest part of that whole commission is his promise that he never leaves us that he never abandons us, that we never do any of this by ourselves. 
that God is constantly with us. He, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he tells the hearers, he says, pursue the kingdom and righteousness and all of your life's provisions will be given. Pursue the kingdom and his righteousness and, and God is your shepherd. You will not be in want for anything. You will lack nothing. You will have everything that you need. Friends, because the triune God is our shepherd, we can be confident that we have everything that we need. In verse 2, it says, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The New English translation says, he takes me to lush pastures. He leads me to refreshing water. You see, God leads us to places of true rest for you and me, friends. And I don't mean rest maybe in the way you might think about it, laying by the pool in the chaise lounge, and maybe there, there are those moments. But, but what he's saying here is in the midst of everything that you experience in your journey of life, God is leading you to a place of true rest, to find rest in him. Jesus says, my uh, yoke is easy, the burden is light. God leads us to places of true rest. And in the, in the power of God, this verse is telling us that we're fed, we're refreshed. All faithful followers, as faithful followers, we can find rest in a green pasture because we have everything that we need. All too often we act as consumers as if we're not going to get enough. I, I have this image of uh, the Easter egg hunt, right? Where people are frantically running, just collecting more than they can possibly use. Halloween candy in my house, it's got a you know, one year plus expiration date. That's how much Halloween candy we have. A year later, we're still sorting through it. For the certain people of my household who feel like they have to save it. As faithful followers, Jesus reminds his hearers again in the Sermon on the Mount in John 7, he, he tells them that, that we're filled to the brim with an inexhaustible supply of living water, Jesus calls it. Come to me, you'll never thirst. Throughout the Gospels, we see him saying, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear But overall, friends, we can be confident in the Lord that as he leads us into these lush pastures, as he leads us beside these refreshing waters, that we'll find rest. God promises us rest, and we can be confident in that. In verse 3, it reads, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. A different way of looking at that is that he restores my strength. He leads me down the paths, the right paths, for the sake of his reputation. You see, God renews our life. God renews our soul by, by assigning to us the righteousness 
of Christ when we place our trust in who he is and what he's done for us and his promised return. He renews our life and soul right in that moment. He assigns us the righteousness of Christ. We're, we're thus reintegrated into this life of union with God, no longer separated by sin. All of this through Christ. And we're promised an eternal life with God. But the verse also tells us that, that part of the process of how God renews our life and soul is by, by guiding us down paths that are meant to form us into Christ's likeness. We're not immediately perfected in our human state, in our fallen state. God looks on us with the perfection of Christ, but we're still works in progress for the remainder of our life on this earth. He renews our life. He renews our soul by leading us down the right paths. He leads us down this path. He doesn't point down to the path and go, hey, get going. Go do your laps. I'll be standing here with the stopwatch, judging. No, God is leading us down the path. And he does it because that's who God is. God is love, the scriptures tell us. The verse reads that he does it for his namesake. He does it for the sake of his reputation. But that, friends, isn't arrogance on the part of God. Hey, don't embarrass me. That's why I'm doing this. He does it because he loves us. He does it because he can't not do it. It's who he is. It's out of his character that he restores our soul. That he leads us to our salvation. That he's constantly calling us to this place. And he's saying, I want to transform you for the rest of your life. We can be confident that the Lord does not want us to be lost, friends. And we can be confident that in our life, following the Lord, having placed our trust in the Lord, we, we won't lack life and we won't lack his guidance. Well, as we move to verse 4, we find a, a shift in the tone of the psalm. In the first three verses, the psalmist has been making declarations, if you will, about God and who he is and his nature and his character. But beginning in verse 4, he, he now begins to speak directly to God. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. He's making this affirmation to God. It's a prayer, if you will. He says, Lord, even though I must walk through dark valleys, I will fear no danger because you're with me. And if there's the greatest confidence we can take from this psalm, it's that God never leaves us or forsakes us, friends. God is present with us in every circumstance of our lives. Imagine what it would be like to have no fear 
in your life. No fear of what life's going to bring you. No fear of getting old, of, of death, disease, or hunger. No fear of any person or creature. Not even the loss of all of your possessions. Can you imagine what that feels like? It's, it's hard. In my 60th year of life, I'm learning. I'm, I'm actually a fearful, anxious person. I never thought that about myself, but there's, I want a life of life without fear and anxiety. And I'm constantly comforted to know that God is with us in every circumstance. And he says, for your rod and your staff comfort me. Your rod and your staff, they reassure me. Now, the shepherd's rod was really like a club. It was used to protect the animals, to beat off predators. And the staff or the shepherd's crook was used to guide sheep, to, to, to force them to move in a particular direction or to pull them some way. Friends, you and I can take comfort that, that God has an army of holy angels in the spiritual realm that he has assigned to protect us. That's part of the, the rod of the shepherd that our God wields. And we can take comfort that his Holy Spirit guides us in the same way that the shepherd's staff or crook guide the sheep. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He's our emotional stability in threatening situations is what the psalmist is saying. And he's saying that, that we are going to walk through these valleys. You see, this psalm doesn't say, hey, just believe this with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you won't walk through the valley. No, the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of death. I like the way Eugene Peterson says it, because I'm a National Park person. When I walk through Death Valley, a valley I've tried to visit three times and have not succeeded, thanks to the weather and road conditions. He's our emotional stability. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. He says, be afraid of the Lord who owns your soul. So we can be confident in the Lord that we won't lack protection and companionship. Verse 5 reads, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. This translation reads, you prepare a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. You refresh my head with oil. My cup is completely full. God provides, friends, all that we need. No matter what the circumstances, this, this idea of this table in the presence of our enemies is like, look, no matter what is going on around you, God is preparing a banquet for you. God is inviting you to his table where you're not wanting for anything. He provides all that we need. He, he refreshes our body when we're physically weary. This idea of anointing one's head with oil 
we can read a lot into that, but, but God is saying, I'm, I'm refreshing you. When, when life is hard and you're weary, I'm inviting you to my table, a table we're going to partake of later in this service. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to refresh you. And I'm going to refresh your spirit when you're emotionally weary. I'm going to fill your cup, this image of, of wine. I don't know how many of you drink wine, but I drink a glass of wine, I start to feel a little good. God wants to help us to experience the joy. He wants us to have a life that is full and free and powerful in him. He wants us to have possessions. He wants us to have the things that make us happy. He wants us to have deep relationships. He wants us to have joyful experiences. God doesn't not want those things for you. God doesn't shake his head when you go look and purchase that thing that you want on Amazon. But he says, be confident in me that you will not be lacking for any provision, no matter the circumstance. And so in the final verse of the psalm, the psalmist rightly comes to life's goal. Life's goal, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says, surely your goodness and mercy will follow for all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This version reads, surely your goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all my days. And I will live in the Lord's house for the rest of our life. Friends, this life that we're on, this, this journey of transformation is, is a lifetime. God is calling us not to have this fixed mindset. You came to Christ at 13, you went to Sunday school, you had it all figured out, and then they, and now just 52 Sundays a year, you show up. If, if what's said confirms everything I think, I'm great. If it challenges me, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. that. No, God wants you and I to challenge ourselves, friends, to grow. And he never stops pursuing us to achieve that. God's goodness and loyal love means he never stops pursuing you and me. He doesn't say, I, I got Stan and Lisa, okay, set them over here. I'm, I'm, I mean, he's omnipresent, omni, omniscient, all-powerful. He, he can do it all at once. But God never stops pursuing us. He never stops calling us. He never stops waiting for us in a season of perhaps being distant from him. God's goodness and loyal love means that he's, he's waiting for us with open arms when we turn back to him. When we rededicate our life as disciples to, to being obedient to him, he's, he's waiting for us. He's never left us. His goodness and loyal love means he, he places us into a fold of a community of people with whom we're meant to live for all of our earthly lives. So long, so many times I've read this verse that says, I'll live in the Lord's house for the rest of my life. I've, and before I became a Christian, I mostly heard this psalm at military funerals. It's required reading there. I think it's 
But my point is, I think, oh, it, it, they're talking about eternal life. No, it's both. It's both. It's this life and that life I've promised. He says, I've, I've placed you into a fold of a community of people, the church, fellow Christians, other believers, with whom we're meant to live our earthly lives for all of our life, with whom we're meant to journey together, to spur one another on to love and to good deeds, to disciple one another, to go out and engage with the world together. God says, this, this is the Lord's house that you will live in the rest of your life. The psalmist here, he says, and I will live in the Lord's house for the rest of my life. He's talking about the present and the future. And Jesus has said, I've gone to prepare a place for you in my father's home. God's goodness and loyal love means he's prepared a place for us with him in eternity. And while we wait for that glorious day to appear when we can truly be without need, without anxiety, without fear, God says, be in my house, be with me every day. So this 23rd Psalm portrays life as a, as a pilgrimage as well as an end state. He's, he's portraying a life that's imminently available to you and me, friends. To those who trust in Jesus and those who follow the Lord. It's, and it's a life we're meant to enjoy. But do you believe this is actually true? Or can we intellectually go, yeah, okay, that all sounds good. Yeah, the, oh, that verse, yeah, it really resonates with me. But do you believe it's true? How do we know if we truly believe something? Where does it manifest? The Bible tells us it manifests in our actions. Do you, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I, I am. I think it's really hard for us as human beings to, to act out and live our lives as if, as if these promises are true. I think that's why God gives us a lifetime for this journey. That's why God, again, calls us into this community. So how do we do it? And the scriptures tell us to, to be obedient, not only to be confident that we lack nothing under the care of the good shepherd who is God, but he says, be obedient. Jesus tells the disciples that, that obedience to his commandments is a prerequisite for the Holy Spirit coming to them. He tells us this in John chapter 14. He says, if you're obedient to all that I've commanded, I'll, I'll send a helper. And that promise is true. God has given all of us his spirit. But it's interesting to note that what comes before the Spirit's leading is obedience. Now, it's easy for me to stand up here and go, oh, just obey. I mean, I say it to my children and my dog a lot and, you know, with mixed results. Much, I'm sure, as God looks at me. You know, Mike, it's, it's a mixed bag with you. So this is the part of the sermon where I, I'm telling you something. I, I, I don't have, I think this is the lifetime it takes to work out how we do this. I'm not going to give you three simple applications, although I do have those. They're not going to solve this problem for you this morning. Because I think, 
I've read things that connect with me that, that three conditions must be present in our life if we're to live in obedience as if what we believe about the power of God is true. The first one is to love God. And you'll recognize these. And the other is to die to self. And the third is to love our neighbors. Right? When the Pharisees asked Jesus, which of these is the great, which is the greatest commandment of the law, Jesus begins to recite this, this Shema, this, this prayer that, that holy Hebrews recite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus goes on to say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Later in the epistles, Paul repeatedly says that loving your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. Well, how do you, how do you get there, right? I think if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's, that's part of our lifetime journey. We have to ask ourselves often, am I doing that? Am I living my life out of that? And out of that comes death to self. That's a whole other sermon series, friends. I, I'm not going to touch that one today. Right? There's a lot of diversity and complexity in how we worship and where we go to church and what we do, and, and that's a good thing. It's easy to get caught up in that, but I, I think we can overlook the fact that the, the fundamental way of, of reaching the world, of, of making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, is to love our neighbors as ourselves in the power of God. And we gain the resources and insight to do that by loving God. Now, again, on the one hand, you know, Jesus simplifies it. Love God and love your neighbor. That's it. But yet, the complexity is 600 and some odd laws in the Old Testament, right? And all these rules and things that, that Christians say are good for us, and they are. But we got to keep the main thing. The main thing is Henry Ford or Lee Iacocca or some captain of consumerism. Consumerism said. That's how we do it, right? Because it's impossible to love God and not love people. And friends, I, I think what I'm saying, part of, a big part of what I'm saying here is we've spent a lot of time, I've been discipled my whole short Christian life to consume information. Yet now I'm looking at the scriptures and it says, yeah, that, and then go and love your neighbor. You see, God's heart, his very nature is love. And if the spirit of God dwells in us, his love will throw, flow through us to others. Dallas Willard is a, is a big influence on me. I, I, I think the things he's written are are, are incredible. He's passed on now, but he says, loving our neighbor as ourselves in the power of God, it's the key to understanding and obeying Jesus, and I think he's 150% right. 
And that feels risky and dangerous, right? Because if we think we're lacking something, if we think there's something yet to be brought to us, then we feel like, well, there's something I got to get first. There's something I've got to protect. I mean, it's so comfortable the way we do it now. But I think that's why Psalm 23 has been given to us to remind us that we can be confident that in the power of God, we have everything we need. And this is my central proposition this morning, not to imply that I'm only halfway through the sermon because I'm at the end. I know some of you are worried about that. But in the power of God, friends, we have everything we need. Rest, life, guidance, safety, provision, community, and an eternal home. The psalmist tells us this in six verses. You can stake your whole Christian life on this psalm. And in God's power, I like how one author put it. He says, we can be carefree, but not without the care for others. And I don't want that to miss us, friends. If, if all we're focused on here is, hey, how do I get free of fear, free of anxiety, free of care, free of the things that I think I want, that's part of the equation. We've got to go take that and care for others and do that while we're learning to do it ourselves. And so I have a few applications, a menu to choose from, if you will. You don't have to do all of them. But I, I would say first and foremost, I want to encourage each of us this week to to take some time and reflect on the state of our discipleship. We all come from such a diverse background of faith traditions and life experiences in the church that brought us here, got us here. And all of that diversity is, is greatness for this congregation because people have been exposed to so many different things. But I'm asking each of us, myself included, to, to reflect on the state of our discipleship. Where am I at on my spiritual journey? Where do I need to grow? Have I been trained to be a consumer Christian? And I honestly, friends, for every one of us, that answer is yes. And I don't say that in a mean-spirited way. I'm just saying that to call our attention to that's the world we live in. We live in a culture in North America that wants us to consume. We live in a world that's fighting for the the resources to consume, and we live in a spiritual realm that's at war with one another. You see, Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. But there's this battle going on between all of these spiritual forces and the forces that are in control of this world, and it's all trying to consume us. And so, friend, have you been trained to be a consumer Christian? Yes, so how do, we, how, do we, how do we change that a bit in the appropriate way? Many of you have probably memorized Psalm 23, if you are a scripture memory person, or even if not. But I would encourage you to, to memorize it. It's only six verses, which makes it achievable for me. Um, I've found myself reciting it every day. Lately. I have a person who I look to for guidance and coaching who literally does it every moment, every day he gets out of bed. If you've already memorized Psalm 23, look at Psalm 103, the first five verses. Praising God 
with everything that's within us for the things that he has done, not forgetting that he saved us from our sins, that he heals us from our diseases, protects us from our enemies, that he renews our strength. I'm sure I got one of those wrong, but you can memorize those verses. But, but I'm learning to grow to be intentional to meet with God every day. And I don't mean just reading my Bible and having my devotional, again, a crucial part of our discipleship. I'm not suggesting to go without it. But to truly invite God into every moment of our day. As I come to grips with my own anxiety and my own fears, I have to constantly remind myself, God, you're with me. And not just state it as this propositional truth like the first two verses of the psalm, but but speak it back to God. God, you're with me. In you, I don't need to be anxious. God, you can guide me in what I'm about to do. God, I, I, I'm afraid I can't construct this sermon in a way that sounds coherent and will, will connect with people. Will you help me? And then, friends, I think we need to start looking at how we give ourselves in some way to our neighbors And I don't think that has to be as cosmic as as some grand program of the church. I think it starts in our home. How can we be a good neighbor to our family members? It starts in our workplace. It's even in our neighborhood and in all the places where we find ourselves out and about. God, could you show me? Could you guide me? How you want me to represent your kingdom in this moment, in this day? I'm having to retrain myself to think that way. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? A prayer written by the late Dallas Willard. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful that you have said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're so thankful for the ease with which you walked upon this earth, the generosity and kindness you showed to people, the devotion with which you cared for those who were out of the way and in trouble, the extent to which you even loved your enemies and laid down your life for them. We're so thankful to believe that this is a life for us, a life without lack, a life of sufficiency, It's so clear in you, the sufficiency of your Father and the fullness of life that was poured through you. And we're so thankful that you have promised that same love, that same life, that same joy, that same power for us. Lord, slip up on us today. Get past our defenses, our worries, our concerns. Gently open our souls and speak your word into them. We believe you want to do it, and we wait for you to do it now. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.